0: I just had this kind of moment of realization um, that between all the people working in the back, Gene's back there running sound, and Angela's back there running our slides, and John is running our lights, and everybody up here on stage, there was not one paid person participating and leading us in worship. And there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And there's the testament that we are a church that says, I'm gonna volunteer, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna use my gifts, I might not be able to sing, but I can can run music, I can run slides, I can do, that's just, to me, such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing that we as a church come together to worship. It's not just, We're not just paying somebody else to lead us in worship. We are together. And I just wanted to celebrate that and give thanks for that this morning. Give thanks for you all. And as we go to the book of John, we'll be in chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 22. And this was actually a lectionary text from last week. And so if you happen to catch the traditional sermon on the podcast, that's where we were. But if not, um, this might be new to you. So John chapter 6 is in our Gospels. It's in the first four books of the New Testament We're going to celebrate this word from Jesus together. All right. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats. And went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Now, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And I'm actually going to stop there. We, we, we're going to start at verse 27 today. I was going to read the rest, but I actually kind of felt like this is where we need to kind of end our reading this morning. So this is the word of God for the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. We are beginning a new series this morning called Connections, where we look at the ways in which we are connected in much deeper realities than often we are aware. Typically, when we think of connections, we think of our phones. We're connected to the world through text messages, through the interwebs, through our YouTubes, through all the things that are out there to connect us, which is why I used the robot voice in the video, but Brianna said it was kind of creepy, so if the robot voice creeped you out, I'm sorry, but I was trying to show like technology is the way we think of ourselves as being connected, yet there are deeper realities that before our iPhones, before the Blackberries, before the Motorola Razors which we all had, those things were cool, right? Before our technologies connected us, we were all connected. We still are all connected, even without our devices. And so for the next four weeks, we're gonna look at the ways in which God is connecting us to himself, to God, the ways we're connected to ourselves that we often don't realize, the ways we're connected to each other in this family of faith, and the ways in which we're connected to all the world. And so today, as we begin this series, I would like for us to look at the ways in which we are connected to God, And I would like to preach from the subject, that's not my God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And all God's people said, amen. 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 There's some energy there. I could feel that. We're back in school. We're kind of getting, we're not as sleepy on a Sunday morning. Somewhere in the parent rule book, there is a rule that is universal. It is very explicit. In this foundational document that I have not yet received, but I'm sure is out there somewhere, there is this tenet to what it means to be a parent. You have to follow this one rule. And literally, I'm almost certain um, that it's written down and that your parental status will be revoked if you don't follow this rule. My parents followed this rule very well. They still follow this rule very well. Um, Ella and Kate, I can guarantee you, your dad follows this rule very well. There are two of my nieces over here, your dad and Hazel, your mom follows this rule very well. This rule, which you all probably know also, and most of you follow, it's got to be written down that to be a parent, you have to find new ways every day to embarrass your children. (laughs) Isn't that true? How many of us have been embarrassed by our parents? Come on, let's be honest. How many of us have embarrassed our kids? Let's be honest, right? My, my daughter doesn't even know left from right. She has, I've already embarrassed her. I'll tell you that right now. Embarrassing your parents, embarrassing your children is just like, it's, it's, it has to be done. If you are going to be a parent, you have to do this thing. My parents, like I said, they were exceptional at keeping this rule. They've probably even done it today. I'm not even aware of it, but i find out about it later. See, I remember one time when I was a kid, you know, they would tell less than favorable stories about me to, like, girls that I was interested in. Like, one time they told them, one time they told this girl about how I had to wear this silver sequined unitarred thing to be the, to be the tin man in some musical rendition of Wizard Oz, and my mom spray-painted some jeans so that it wouldn't look so kind of crazy. Like, they like to just tell those stories about us that they're a little embarrassing, right? It's part of the relationship between parent and child because that's ultimately what we have with our parents when we have our children, right? We have these relationships that connect us. At the core of who, who we are, we have these different ways of connections through relationship. Aristotle was the father of Western thought. And he understood that there were like 10 different ways of being, 10 different things about the essence of life. And two of those were substance and relationship, substance and relationship. Substance is that which stands on its own. If you are a substance, you have matter, you have tangibility, you can touch it, you can see it, you can feel it. It's, it's autonomous. It doesn't need anything else to be. Substance is just is. Relationship though, in order for a relationship to exist, there has to be another I cannot be in relationship on my own. Relationships require something else to be in existence with which to relate. That's why in Aristotle's mind, in the hierarchy of being, substance is the greatest because it can be done on its own. It is its own thing. But relationship is not as good because you can't be in an autonomous relationship. So here's an example. August is my daughter by virtue of the fact that I am her father. She on her own is August. The substance of she is August, but she is only daughter because she and I are in relationship. I am her father, she is her daughter. And vice versa, I am not a father without her. So if she had not yet come into being, I would not yet be a father. And so that's how a relationship works. You can be you, but you can't be you in relationship without somebody else. The thing that Mr. Aristotle did not realize yet, or however, was that God is not substance. You see, as Christians, we prescribe to this thing called the Trinity. We believe that God is most perfectly known as one being in three persons, which really confuses other religions when they hear about us because they think, oh, well, they have three gods, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. But no, we actually believe, and this is really confusing, in one God in three persons. Now, I'm not going to get on too heady of a theological direction for us today, but this is kind of foundational for this whole series, that we at least remember that the Trinity is real. Richard Rohr, who wrote the book, The Divine Dance, and who had a lot to do with the way in which I shaped this series, he suggests that for most Christians, the Trinity is just one among many doctrines, which if we were to remove it from existence, it would have very little impact on our day-to-day lives. How often do you think of how the Trinity is impacting you? Not just Jesus as the forgiver, or God as the creator, or the Holy Spirit, not them as individuals, but them in relationship to themselves. What does Trinity and its practical implications mean for our lives? It's odd. This doctrine we consider essential, this idea that is foundational for our Christian faith in the everyday world doesn't seem to matter, doesn't seem to mean anything. But yet in reality, the true nature of God as Trinity has deep ramifications for everything in life. And that's why it's important for us to start there today, to remember that God is manifest in three persons. And as such, that is the deepest form of existence. Before anything else, there was God. And since there was God, there was God in three persons. So before anything else was even thought of being created, before anything else came into being, there was this relationship happening, this cosmic, eternal relationship. Therefore, relationship, not substance, is the highest and truest form of existence. We are a reflection of God. Have you ever heard the phrase that you are created in the image of God? The imago dei is the Latin for that. John Wesley talks about the image of God a lot. The idea that we create an image of God, we have lots of conversation. What does that mean? Is it a physical image? Does it, the fact that we can reason Rohr suggests, and and I agree, that actually the, the way in which we reflect the image of God is that we are relational beings, that at our core, who we are is not us as an autonomous self on our own, but the truest form of yours and mine of our existence is in relationship with God and with others. But the implications of Trinity in our life, you know, we don't think about it that way. We just think about it as like God is there somewhere, a being up in the sky. Jesus came down but went back up. But the reality is, since Jesus became incarnate, since God became human, Trinity matters today in very, very real ways because it affects the way that we see each other, that we relate to one another, and that we exist with God. But as humanity, we often fail to realize this which ends up making us have these disconnections, these disconnections from God and who God is in our life. We saw that in our text today, right? Jesus and his most Jesusful ways is calling out people, and we don't even read it when we gloss over it. He's actually kind of calling these people out. He's saying, you're actually not looking for me for the reasons you think you're looking for me. So what happened was, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people before this story, and then he walked on water. It's a pretty cool story, right? I've never seen anybody walk on water. But apparently Jesus did that. Jesus walked on water to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so whenever the people were waiting to see Jesus again, they were looking for him that next morning after he'd fed 5,000 people. And he was gone and his disciples were gone. And then some boats landed and they weren't in it. So the people were like, oh, where are they? So they themselves got in some boats and went to the other side of the sea as well. When they got over there, they found Jesus. They found his disciples. And they were like, Jesus, how did you get here? Your disciples left in a boat but you didn't go with them, yet you're here. How did you get here? He didn't tell them, hey, I walked on water. Hey, I did these cool things. Hey, let me tell you about it. What he does is he says, I know why you're looking for me. Don't miss a beat. Because I I know why you are here. You're not here because I do signs and wonders. You're not here because the miracles are performed or the truths that I teach. You're here because I fed you yesterday and you want some food. You're here because you got a free meal and you want another one. You're here because you just think I'm a human vending machine and you have a right to get what I have to give. He goes on to say, "Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on God, from him, for him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And of course, like the feature of most gospels, they don't get it." They don't understand what he's saying. They're just like, we want the food. You gave us some bread, It's really good bread. Ciabatta bread is our favorite kind of bread. You can get some more ciabatta bread. You gave us a fish. It was snapper season, so you, you got some snapper. We appreciate that. Can we get some more snapper? And, and Jesus said, no, no, no. You think you know what you want, but what I have to give is much deeper. I have a relationship to bring you into. I have sustained life to offer. I have bread that is eternal. This is a very difficult sermon for me to preach, not because I'm like nervous or anything like a couple weeks ago, but because when it comes to talking about God, there's so much I want to say. And most of you know that I can say a lot of things for a long time. So fitting all the things I want to say into one sermon about God is really difficult for me. But also the more difficult part is knowing that no matter what I say, it will not be enough because God is so much more than we can put into words. God in our lives and the realities of who God is is so much deeper than our limited forms of knowing and understanding and retaining information. God is God and we are not. Yet even though this God is unlimited and completely transcendent, God has chosen to be connected to you and me. God is connected to you. Like that's a pretty powerful statement if you think about it. The God who created all things is connected to you. And through that connection, we are made aware of a number of realities that affect our daily lives. And during these last couple of minutes together, I just want to hit on three of these realities that have everyday implications for us. The first is that God is connected to us because of the space that God made for us. Have you ever thought about that? If God was all there was in the beginning, if there was nothing but God, if there's nothing else other than God, then when we came into being. God essentially had to remove part of himself from being. He had to retract himself in some way, some way we can't really understand. But just think, like, if you've got this whole screen right here and it's all taken up for God, by God, there's no room for you or me. And so we would have to take away part of this screen to give us some space. And not just you and me, but all of creation. The ancient rabbis believed this, and in their tradition, they called this zimzum. Can you say that? Zimzum. Can you say that? Zim-zum. zimzum. There we go. It's not Maza Zumzum, similar, but not quite. It is the zimzuming of God. And it's actually spelled with a T, and so you say like Zimzum, but I can't say it that well. So in English, we say Zimzum. This idea of Zimzum, I learned about from a book about the Zimzum of marriage that Brianna and I, or the Zimzum of love that Brianna and I read together just as, you know, to enhance our marriage, and it's wonderful. But what I realized, though, is that the beginning connection we have to God is that God sacrificed of himself to make room for us. Before you and I were even thought of, God was doing work on our behalf. Have you ever thought about that? Like in a very cosmic sense. And by us, I mean all of creation. Before we were even a twinkle in our parents' eyes, right? I love that phrase. Before anything, God was making room for us in the world, in the cosmos, to be part of this relationship. And in this form of retraction... God continues to build upon this sacrificial love through his vulnerability. The second thing about our connections is that we often think about God as almighty, all powerful, you know, all these kind of superfluous terms, which that he is, God is all these things. Yet Rohr suggests we should also celebrate God the most vulnerable one. Not most venerable one, most vulnerable one. We are connected to God through a sense of vulnerability and weakness. You see, as humans, we see strength as the the capability of existing independently. Like We are strongest when we take care of ourselves, when we don't need anybody else. Human strength wants to promote, project, and to protect a clear sense of self-identity and autonomy, not interbeing, not needing others. I know who I am on my own is our way of understanding strength. I think it's almost the most cliche way we live nowadays, isn't it? I've heard plenty of us in this room speak in this kind of way. I can do it on my own. I do not need your help. I'm not going to show my emotions because emotions are a weakness, emotions reveal that I'm not self sufficient. Let me show the world how capable I am. I can support myself, my family. I can do my own job. I don't get hurt when people say mean things to me. It doesn't bother me that my flaws limit my upward mobility. No one can see that I have inner struggles and difficulty. I'm fine. Hey, how you doing today? I'm good. Have you ever said that? When truly you were not. You know why we do that? Because we like to pretend to be real strong. We like being self-sufficient. As humans, we like to be able to take care of ourselves. I don't need anybody. I can fend for myself. I can make my own money. Friends, that is the biggest boatload of hogwash that we can espouse as Christians. Let me say, I I think that that is truly the quintessential way that we kind of live. We all project this false facade of independence, this individualistic capability to not rely on others not rely on our family, our friends, our pastors, our parents. Let's admit that we think strength is self-autonomous behavior is important. However, the weakness of God, it looks very different. Because if God is most perfectly known in relationship and not substance, then God chooses to exist in a state of being with others. God, is, God the Father is only the Father if there is God the Son. They are not independent. They're not autonomous. They're in relationship. Relationship is the essence of God's existence. And so if we're truly trying to be holy, like Christ, to be more like God, we will drop this false independence and we will purposely be vulnerable with others. We will not say we have to be independent on our own, but that we will be dependent on the people in our lives. God exists as three because the relationship is essential for God to be truly who God is. And so for us to be who we are, to be most like God, to be try to be more like Christ, which is what we say when we try to be more holy, we have to have each other. We have to lean on each other. We have to trust one another. You can't do life on your own. Not in being a Christian. You can't say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't go to church. I don't trust people. I have a hard time opening up. Sure, these realities are difficult to live into, but they are necessary if we are gonna move in the path of sanctification. Richard Orr says, holiness is the path towards wholeness, which is never ending. We will always be on this journey to love one another more, to trust one another more. You are supposed to need us. We are supposed to need you. And the last thing of these ways in which we're connected, the saddest thing about our connections to me, or maybe our disconnection, is our false connection to God based on God as a genie or a fearmonger. So how often have we gone to God and said, hey God, if you just do this one thing for me, I will go to church more. Hey, God, if you help me in this scenario, I will pick up my Bible every day. Hey, God, if, if, if I just rub my magic lamp of prayer and you do this, then I will do that. Like our text today, like the people came to Jesus, Jesus, we just want some food like, just to give us the thing we want. We are often the people crossing the sea just to find Jesus to be able to give us the things that we want to give, and that is the extent of our relationship with God. Have you ever been there? Has that ever been your relationship with God? Have you ever said, God, I'm with you when I need you? I need you when I want something. Help me with this promotion. Help me make a good grade on this test. Help me find this, this girlfriend or boyfriend. Help me to do whatever it is. Like The only time we ever commune with God we ever connect with God is when we say, God, we need something. That is not who God wants to be in our life. The other time is when we base our relationship with God on fear. We see God as the eternal threatener, not as the ultimate participant. You see, God as Trinity is not distant, but present. And the way in which God is present with us is through an expression of love a love that is unconditional, a love that knows no bounds. The vast majority of us Christians are afraid of God, Rohr says. And then his broad and wild worldwide experience it's not that most Christians are naturally more loving, they just think that they are. But this is inevitable whenever your basic relating to God is out of fear. If your faith is just fire insurance. Do we connect to God because we're afraid of judgment? God, we only love you so we don't get judged poorly. Or God, we're afraid of your punishment day by day, and so that's our connection. Is God in your life this overseer who is out to get you? Do you see God as this punisher for every wrongdoing, every deed that you've done that you feel bad about? Is that God in your life? Because if that's who God is to you, then you and I must be in different religions. Because the God I know, the God that the Bible speaks of, the God that our tradition affirms, is a God who expresses a relationship of love. And yes, God is the ultimate judge of all things. Yet God is trying to draw us into something so much more real than fear, to draw us something so much more real than temporary need, to draw us into eternal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is so much for you in this relationship. So I don't know what you're scared of and why you think God is out to get you. And I don't know what you need and how difficult things in your life might be. Petitions are part of prayers. We do ask God for things, but there's so much more God wants to offer you. There's so much more to this relationship with this God who is loving and who loves you. And so may we be a church that sinks deep into this reality that God wants to be in relationship with you not just as some distant overseer, but as some presence in your life every single day. You are loved by the God of all things. He's made space for us. He's poured himself out for us. And he wants to be in deep relationship with us. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for these connections. We thank you for these ways in which you are moving in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you continue helping us to see you more in real ways. Beyond our petitions. Beyond our fear. But to know that you are a loving presence in our lives now and always. And so we give you thanks for being our God and letting us be your people. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen